Registration is now open for Skyhawks Sports Academy Summer Camps. Join them for an action-packed, fun-filled summer of youth sports camps at a location near you. Choose between soccer, flag football, fueled by USA football, golf, baseball, cheerleading, multi-sports camps, mini-hawk camps, and more. Find program information and register today at www.skyhawks.com. It's time to welcome in Alex Brink, Washington State radio football analyst, part of our spring football tour. Alex, good morning. Good morning, guys. How are you? We're doing well. We're going to see a lot of the Washington State Cougars. Utah State in the opener, Utah in the fourth game of the year, and BYU in late October. That is the, looks like the eighth game of the year for Washington State. And obviously you had the coaching change there, and I'm just curious how much we know about Nick Rolovich and how much just because of the craziness of 2020 and the super abbreviated season, how much is he still a mystery to Wazoo fans and just they're drawn on what he did at Hawaii because they haven't seen enough of him at Wazoo? Well, i tell you what, I, I think one thing we learned about Nick Rolovich and his staff in general uh, throughout all of 2020 you know, was a lot about who they are as people and their ability to connect with both athletes and fans, right? I mean, Nick Rolovich was very early on in kind of the pandemic lockdown time, going out into the community in Pullman and ordering meals uh, for people and saying, hey, meet me down at the local pizza shop, and I got 20 pizzas waiting for anybody that needs dinner, stuff like that, right? And so that connection, you know, is, is true to the Coug spirit, obviously. You know, I think the question marks around kind of what the product is going to be on the field, you know, it's fairly similar to, to what you would see with other programs, you know, that have gone through coaching changes during this time. You just don't really know because – you know, four games or six games or whatever you got in last year really just wasn't, um, you know, wasn't enough of a sample size. So I think that's what we're waiting to see, particularly on the offensive side of the football is when the run and shoot, you know, Nick Rolovich's kind of trademark offense, so to speak, of what he runs, when that run and shoot is fully installed, what does it look like at Washington State? Because we did not see that in 2020. We saw, you know, fits and starts, but we didn't see, I think, what the end product will be. So I can make a case you got nine starters returning back on offense with that Rolovich offense that you speak of, but the quarterback position is a little bit muddled. Obviously, the freshman Jaden Delora had his issue. I think he had the DUI was suspended uh, during the off season. Guarantano, the transfer from Tennessee, comes in. Uh, Cam Cooper, a local kid, is still in the mix. As of right now, where does it stand? Well, you know, you're 100% right that it is a little murky. I mean, Jaden Delora got off to a hot start with a win against Oregon State last year as a true freshman, but, you know, as most freshmen experience at a high level, um, you know, tailed off a little bit towards the end, particularly against some of the better teams in the league. So I think in general, on field was a great learning experience for him, but, you know, he made some poor choices off the field, and now he's in a position where he's got to battle for his job. And so, uh, you know, bringing in Garantano from Tennessee, I think, was a great move for Washington State, a guy that started a ton of ball games in the SEC. And, you know, he's kind of vilified to some degree by the Tennessee fans. Um, but if you look at that Tennessee program that's had so much turmoil and so much turnover at the coaching position during his time, you can appreciate where um, he's had challenges as a quarterback. So going to Washington State, I think, was going to be a great move. And then first play of the spring scrimmage there on at the end of spring ball, you know, he got hurt with looked like a hand injury. We don't know how serious or anything, but, you know, that was going to be kind of the fans' first opportunity to see him in live action. 
Um, so that was a little disappointing. But he's got a long way to go, obviously, before fall camp to get ready. And then, you know, Cameron had a nice spring and I think has a, a season and a fall under his belt to learn this offense. He's obviously a phenomenal athlete. Um, you know, he's kind of of the mold. I always tell people that, you know, nowadays we used to guys that if they don't play by their freshman or sophomore year, they transfer or we kind of consider them a failure. The reality is, shoot, when I was playing, if, if, if you sat for two or three years, you were considered experienced, and that was part of the timeline when you got a chance to go. And so I think Cam has been waiting his, uh, waiting his turn, and so he's in the mix to compete for sure. So the receiver core, it looks like uh, two or three. Got Harrison Bell put up pretty big stats last year, and Calvin right there. Behind that, uh, you know, it's only four games, so there's a lot of freshmen and sophomores. I'm curious if the receiving core is top-heavy, uh, if you expect any of these freshmen and sophomores to break out, or is it going to be the same guys at the, at the top of the stat sheet again? I'll tell you what, I mean, if you can if you can believe it, you know, considering you had Mike Leach in the air raid offense and then you transitioned right into Nick Rolovich in the run and shoot, you know, the receiver position I would consider a little bit thin right now at Washington State. I mean, there was from the transition from Coach Leach to Coach Rolovich, there was a lot of turnover. You had some graduation, you had some guys, you know, that didn't make it for various reasons, transfers and that sort of thing. Um, and so last year going into the season, you're right, you know, you had Renard Bell and Travell Harris in the slot that were super impactful. I mean, they fit really well. Jameer Calvin was another guy that, you know, was productive. He actually entered the transfer portal and, and has since transferred to, I think he announced Mississippi State with Coach Leach just the other day. So he's gone, um, you know, and so you don't have as much depth as you would like. And they brought in some guys on the outside that, they're, you know, they're hoping young freshmen have a chance um, to, to pop. They brought in a junior college transfer, C.J. Moore from uh, who was at Oklahoma State, a former four-star recruit, big, tall, athletic receiver. They really hope he can pop, but they need some help on the outside. I mean, this run-and-shoot offense needs four guys that can go get the football. They need guys that are threats on the outside. And right now, Washington State don't doesn't have um, guys that have proven they can do it. I think they have the athletic ability, and they have the guys on the roster, You know, but they got to do it when the live bullets are flying. All right, well, the the run and shoot, you know, you talk about the shoot, but how about the run? Because I like the running backs uh, with, uh, obviously, Borgie and uh, what's the Notre Dame transfer? McIntosh, what's his name? Yeah, uh, Dion McIntosh. That's yeah, right. so you got those two kids, and then I look at the line, you got four or five starters returning. Lucas, uh, I think it was second team, all Pac-12 last year there so it looks like they're in good hands as far as running the ball you think maybe we'll see some more of that yeah you know it's funny i think in the past it's been very easy right to to lean into washington state's offense and talk about quarterbacks and receivers because of the system and what you know what coach leach brought and you know what we expected out of nick rolvis the reality is uh, Max Borgie is the best player on this roster at the running back position, um, you know, across the board. And I would, I would argue that he's one of the top five players in the Pac-12 um, as long as he stays healthy, which, you know, last year was kind of the first year we saw that pop up for him. I mean, he's an explosive back. He's going to play on Sundays, no doubt. Um, and I think this system is going to fit him really well. They do want to lean into running the football more. Uh, you know, Nick Rolovich and his offense coordinator, Brian Smith, who is the running back coach, uh, you know, they want to, have an element of balance but more importantly you know they want to utilize their playmakers to the best of their ability so you know they're not gonna you're not gonna see Max Borgie just in the backfield he'll split out at times you'll see him in motion they'll get creative with him 
I mean, he is he is truly going to be a guy that uh, is going to make a huge impact, you know, every time he touches the field on Saturdays. And then we saw last year when Forgy was hurt, Deion McIntosh, like you said, Notre Dame transfer, um, you know, really successful in his own right, had a great, uh, great season in that shortened year. So you have some depth there. Um, and then that offensive line, I mean, look, Abe Lucas is going to be a first-round draft pick in, in the NFL at the right tackle position. You got Liam Ryan, who's back, who's going to be a four-year starter. You got Brian Green, your center back. I mean, you have um, at the guard position, you have talent and you have depth there. And so I think this offensive football team for Washington State is going to center around the line and the running backs, you know, which is strange to say based on what we know about the Cougars in the past. But, I mean, that's really where they're going to make their bread and butter. We're joined right now by Alex Brink, Washington State Radio Football Analyst, Spring Football Tour. Washington State's going to open with the Utah State Aggies, then play the Utes and the Cougars later in the year. So we're going to see a lot of them. You know, on the defensive side of the ball, if we've learned anything watching Kyle Whittingham over a decade and a half as a head coach at the U, uh, defense starts with the defensive line. And if you can stop the run and if you can do it with those front four, then everything else you can build off of that. And reading about the spring game, basically the whole D-line sat. Have they identified the whole D-line, trust the whole D-line, and they're starting in a good place there? Well, I tell you what, I think, you know, Washington State's defense as a whole is, if you look at the roster in the two deep and even into the three deep, there's a lot of guys that have Pac-12 snaps under their belt, right? And there's, you know, there's various reasons for that. It, It feels like, you know, there were some injuries last year, so you got some different guys that were stepping up. Previously, two years ago, other guys happened to be the starters and stepping up, and then they were banged up last year. So now you've got this too deep across the board on the defensive line where you say, oh, yeah, you know, two years ago, Willie Taylor had four and a half sacks. You know, last year he wasn't quite as impactful. So is he going to step up again and, and, and be the guy? Uh, you know, you got guys like Brennan and different rush end type guys that stepped up last year that I think, um, you know, have a chance again to, to make an impact. The key is going to be in that inside. Um, you know, in those one and three techniques, right? Can they can they make a big enough impact that they keep the offensive line off the linebackers to be able to continue to make plays? And I think Washington State's defensive line, through for various reasons, both recruiting and injuries, you know, over the last two or three years, have struggled with depth issues, and their impact players haven't had a chance to make the impact that you would expect. So I'm looking to see if that group can get healthy over the summer and come in full strength in the fall, because I do think um, you know they have a chance to really be uh, be a solid group. But the reality is Washington State's strength uh, on defense right now is at the corner position, which is it's been, it's, it's been a long time since Washington State's had a chance to say that. But Jalen Watson, you know, number zero, is as good as they get when it comes uh, to, to a corner. He's 6'3", 195 pounds. He came in. He was a former USC recruit, had to go the junior college route because of some great issues. Ends up at Washington State, was a great player last year in that shortened season, had the chance to be really, really special. And then you bring back George Hicks, Shaw Smith-Wade, um, you know, Derek Langford. You've got four or five guys that can go into that rotation at corner. So, to me, I'm saying, boy, if our secondary is that strong, you know, maybe that helps the D-line, whereas in the past it's really been about can the D-line get pressure to help the secondary. All right, so that leaves us with linebacker. Uh, I can make a case. I think they're they're waiting for uh, see what Dylan Sherman does if he returns or not, which would bolster the group. But you got to like Jaha Woods, who can make a case for him possibly being all conference. Yeah, boy. I mean, you're bringing back Jahad Woods, who's gonna uh, you know be one of the all-time leading tacklers. Uh, at Washington State when it's all said and done. The fact that he decided to return, honestly, 
uh, is a big boon for Washington State's defense. I mean, he is a he had you know was kind of on track to maybe average less tackles per game during last year's season than he did previously, but that was almost by design, right? He was in the past he's been asked to do everything, be all over the field, and that's really affected I think you know his overall performance in the end. Although he's had a lot of tackles, so I look for him this year, right? If he has the help on the D line, he has a guy next to him making plays. You know, you won't have to have Jihad Woods make every tackle, but he'll make the impactful tackles. And so he is really the core of it. You bring back Justice Rogers, who's been, you know, a three-year starter at middle linebacker, a former high school quarterback who's super cerebral, you know, has been very productive. But there's a guy on the roster named Travion Brown that, that the coaching staff has been kind of waiting to come along at the middle linebacker position. I mean, he, he really looks the part when he's on the field. And, you know, he had some flashes as a freshman. Um, was a guy that was, uh, you know, all pack as a, as a true freshman. And then, you know, he comes back on the fresh, excuse me, freshman all pack team. And then, you know, last year didn't get as much time because of injuries. But if he can step up, you know, he's going to provide some really important depth at that linebacker position. And again, they need somebody that can be an enforcer in the middle of the field. And, and I think Travion Brown can be that guy if he's on, if he's on the field. So in the shortened season, Washington State went 1-3 with a bizarre and really somewhat unfair schedule, beat Oregon State in the opener, but then had to play Oregon, USC, and Utah, just getting the top of the conference after that, and uh, lost all three of those games. So where are expectations for this year? Is, uh, is a winning record possible? I sure think a winning record is possible. You know, I think they're going to have to start fast. I mean, I really believe that. You know, this is a team that... You know, it is learning still under Nick Rolovich. There's been that transition. I think one thing about Mike Leach and what they brought in was a very clearly defined system, you know, and expectations from top to bottom. And so, you know, that guys were used to that, right? And now they've had to transition to something a little bit different that I think can have success in its own right. But, um, you know, they really got to, you know, get a chance to, to kind of gel together. And, and the challenge, if you don't start fast, right, is then all the question marks and the outside noise starts to come in. So I think, you know, getting off to a fast start against Utah State would be really important. Um, you know, the question marks at quarterback, uh, I think, are uh, very valid, and those have to get answered, you know, during fall camp right away. But, again, with the offensive line and Max Borgie and then what looks like some strength on the back end of the defense, you know, I, there, there are pieces of the puzzle that are going to allow some of the growth to happen um, a little bit along the way. So I think a winning record is absolutely the expectation at Washington State. And, I, and, I, and honestly, what I really believe is that, you know, there should never be a step back now to the, the Washington State Cougars not expecting to go to a bowl game every year. And so to me, I think that's what the guys in the room truly believe. Well, Alex, we appreciate you coming on the air. We might lean on you in the fall since uh, sure. you're playing all three uh, in-state teams. I don't know why Portland State. I mean, Weber State and Southern Utah. I mean, cut a deal. Let's, <laughs> yeah, we might as well yeah, have, go, have go, them all in, right? Have four. Go for the grand slam, right? All right, thanks, sure. Alex. We appreciate it. Yeah, guys, look forward to catching up again. Take care. Alex Brink, Washington State Radio Football Analyst, a season opener with the Aggies, the Utes on September 25th, and the Cougars on October 23rd. So there is a spring football Tour stop at Wazoo. Coming up, Andy Bailey, NBA analyst for Bleacher Report at 9 o'clock. We got some Bees tickets to give away. We got your reaction to the Jazz. Great rally, disappointing loss, and a possible quick return to play the Warriors in the first round of the playoffs. And we'll get to all of that coming up next. Stay with us. DJ PK in the morning brought to you by Mark Miller Subaru. PK, you know the great thing about this show? 
What, DJ? Well, we solve the mysteries of the universe. We've gotten answers to questions this morning. You happy with the comeback or are you mad at the loss? The Jazz were down 18. There was eight minutes left in the fourth quarter, and they just looked like they were dead in the water. The sails were up, but there was not a breeze to be found. I thought bringing in Matt Thomas to start the fourth quarter was great. Keep the minutes off somebody else's leg. Get the other guys ready for Wednesday. Hey, he gave him a little spark. He gave him a little life, but they were still in a big hole. And then Jordan Clarkson, for no apparent reason whatsoever, heated up. He goes for 41, and the Jazz come back to take the lead. Now, they lose the game at the end, so you happy with the comeback or mad at the loss? Mitch says, I was happy to see Clarkson get hot. We need him confident going into the postseason. (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) Is that an issue? You got some, uh, I don't think it is. Quinn addressed that in the postgame. You know, he said he's mentally tough. And Quinn does not want, and we, we all do this to one degree or another, and, and probably the players do too. Certainly Joe does, because Quinn's talked about Joe specifically, but I'm sure other players do it too. Quinn doesn't want the analysis of the shot attempt to be it went in or it didn't, so it was a good shot or it wasn't. He has come up with, and I'm sure they got data and they got video, and he's decided this is a good shot. This is a bad shot. Now, the bad shots go in sometimes. And the good shots don't always go in, but he definitely, man, he's just hammered this with the media. A good shot, you know, a 45-foot pass up the sideline and a quick three unguarded is a good shot. And he's drilled that into the media over and over. Now, Clarkson, who didn't have an assist while he had 41 points, and I know a lot of people saw a lot of comedy in that, but when he was red hot in the fourth quarter and everything was going in, he got a and I don't remember if he, I think he ran down a long rebound, and he was on the far side of the court, and he threw a 45-foot pass up the sideline to Bogey, and I remember thinking, well, that's what Quinn wants. Bogey better take this shot, and he took it and he missed it. And I don't think Quinn's ever going to second-guess that. You know, if it goes in, then Clarkson has an assist, and that whole bizarro stat, you know, talking point goes away because of one assist. So, good shot, bad shot, he's not just judging on whether it goes in. You know, these, uh, you were talking earlier, PK, about the shots and the paint. And Quinn hasn't gone into this a lot, although once he did, and maybe other times because I haven't been on every Zoom call. Uh, but I heard him talk about with Clarkson, you know, he has a different set of rules than everybody else. They trust him to beat people off the dribble. Uh, certainly they trust Mitchell and probably Conley, too, to beat people off the dribble. Joe in certain situations, but he's gotten a lot better at it. But Clarkson... You can change direction once or even twice, but the third time the ball has to be passed because just too many defenders are going to collapse on you. And there are going to be people coming in from weird angles you can't always anticipate. Uh, so I thought when you brought that up, I thought of that, about that right away. Um, but, you know, how you analyze these uh, and how we and, and fans, media, all together, how we analyze these performances isn't automatically how Quinn's doing it. You know, who had a good night and who had a bad night? We were talking about Joe Ingles earlier, you know. One for six. I don't, you know, I don't think six three-pointers. He was one for six from three. I don't, think, I don't think taking six threes is a bad game for Joe. Now, you'd have to go through the film, break it down possession by possession. Maybe he passed some up. And how good were they and, and why did he do it? But when you're just looking for a number for a game, six isn't a bad number for him.
The way I look at Clarkson is that he's one of these guys in a baseball analogy who produces a lot of runs, a lot of runs batted in, a lot of home runs, but there's going to be some strikeouts along the way. And you're just going to have to take those strikeouts yep. with the other stuff, and there's not much you can do about it. And so rather than focus on the strikeouts, is he contributing to helping your team win? And if the answer is yes, well, he's not a perfect player who makes great decisions every single time he has the ball. So you're going to have to just live with that, try to reduce the opportunities to uh, make a bad decision, help him, coach him along that way, and then you go along that and get what you get. So, and they've, they've, What's, their, what's the phrase I'm looking for? I guess the symbol without any cliche is they've made their decision that this is who uh, they're going to be with him. This is how they're going to treat him, how they're going to play him. So with that in mind, they've already made it up. Their minds are made up that he's going to have free reign to do what he does. So that, there's no sense uh, going back and forth on it. It's just the reality of it. And so live with it. And they've decided, the experts have decided, that there's far more benefit in him doing this than reining him in and second-guessing him. Majerus used to call it bench-eye. You know, <laughs> That's a good he term. Was such a, yeah, he was such a dominant, imposing figure on the sidelines. And he knew that that was a little bit of a weakness in his game because he always stood up. I mean, he literally never sat. And he was there at all times, you know. And every time there was a timeout or a free or a free throw shooter, I should say, free throws, he'd call the guard line over. You know, every single time, and coached him so intensely. And then he knew that a drawback was that he felt like some of the players had bench up, meaning you know they were looking over. Is this a good shot? Well, obviously at that point, if it's a good shot and you're looking over, you're not going to make it because <laughs> you're not in any flow or any rhythm. And so Quinn Snyder and his staff along with the other organizational people, have decided that Jordan Clarkson, this is what you're going to do, son, so go ahead and do it. And I'm going to back you. He's never, I don't know that he's ever said a critical word. And he's never shown disgust. I mean, Quinn rarely shows disgust towards players. I don't know that you can do that at the pro level. You can get away with it at the college level. At the pro level, an assistant coach, Greg Foster, says something, and some mm-hmm. no-name players yelling at him to shut the F up as he's running back on defense. Right? So the pros, you probably have to treat them well. You definitely have to treat them a little bit differently. So just gonna if you think Clarkson is out of line sometimes, well, it probably is, but they've decided that they're going to live with that. And really, Dutch is him, pretty much everybody. Because Quinn has said, I'd rather have you go 0 for 10 than 1 for 2. And I don't think he just says it to say it. I think he says it because he absolutely means it. Mm-hmm. And he's making a point with what he says. And it's, you know, maybe the point is there rather than the literal 0 for 10. But the point is very strong. So that's who he is. That's who they are. And you know, they've had a lot of success this way. You just got to go with it. I do think for those of you who are listening, and I, I think you're in the minority, well, those but of you I'm who are sure not listening, you they are. wouldn't even know. I'm not talking to you is the point. I'm not talking to people who aren't listening. I'm not talking to you. <laughs> PK, that was the you point. You said for those of you who are listening. As opposed to you who's hosting the show. Okay, got it. Not man. as opposed to, you know, Bob, <laughs> who doesn't like basketball and only golfs. It's the only sport he cares about, and he golfs six days a week. Okay. Well, why don't you, well, you just say his full name, Bob Casper? <laughs> <laughs>
who lives at dot dot dot. There's been a little bit of griping out there in social media, so you can kind of get sure. that there's some yeah, jazz yeah. fans about, man, Clarkson is just, basically right. he's an unrepentant gunner. He's the guy you don't want to play with in a, uh, in a pickup game, because once you throw him the ball, you never get it back. And that's been a little bit of a work in progress, but they got him when they had no bench, and he was the best option, even if it was only a C shot for him, an average or a C minus shot for him, it still might be a B plus for the group on the floor. Now that's changed over time. You know, guys like Niang have been improving and getting better, and so that's you know Conley's healthy, and so that makes the bench deeper and all that kind of stuff. Clarkson averages fifteen to sixteen shots a game. A couple times a month, he'll have a game where he takes 20 shots. But his average is in that 15-16 range. Now, during the stretch when Conley and Donovan are out, uh, just in the last half dozen games, he has been averaging, I guess they've both been out for eight, but over the last six games, he's averaging about 21 shots a game. I mean, I think there's definitely, uh, hey, I'm out on the floor with guys who are less experienced and shooting isn't their thing right now. Maybe after 10,000 shots and a lot of video analysis, these guys will be dialed in dead eyes and they'll, you know, we'll be able to trust them completely. But I think right now, when in doubt, it's going up. And his assists have been climbing. He's become a more willing passer. He had a, a stretch where he seemed to be averaging about one assist or two assists a game. Uh, and he's gotten that up to where he's four assists a game. And, you know, the, there are nights where he's you know, five or eight or whatever. Uh, but I think in this stretch right here, I think there's definitely feel like the way defenses are playing us and given who he's on the floor with most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, I think his green light has gotten a brighter shade of green. And he's already had the green light. So it'll be interesting to see I... how much that 21 shots a night gets dialed down, assuming Donovan's back, Conley's back, and we're back in the rotation that we saw for most of this year. The only thing I would disagree with you is with Jordan Clarkson, there's no such phrase, when in doubt. <laughs> well, there's probably something to that. <laughs> probably have to agree with you on that. When in the half court. <laughs> <laughs> One stride across midcourt, I'm looking for a spot. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was critical of him last night. Uh, driving and then getting stuck and throwing up some off-balance shot. But I would wonder what the stats would be on his very move that I'm speaking of that I was critical of last night because he has the ability to dance and keep his pivot foot and put up a hook shot or a fadeaway shot. And it seems to me, man, when he gets deep in there, that – his shooting percentage is probably very high. I'm just going by eyeballing it and watching all the games and watching all the shots that he takes because I actually like it when he does that because he's very creative in being able to get off his shot. I guess I would say if you're down on the block and you've got the biggest dude on the other team standing there and you've already picked up your dribble, you know, maybe at that point look to pass out, make sure that the other guys are moving to get themselves open rather than standing there because they think that Jordan's going to put up the shot. Now, sometimes he has to put up the shot because the guys are standing there and there's one second left on the shot clock, so there's no point in passing the ball 
because whoever's going to receive it isn't going to get a good shot either way. So you might as well have yourself do it. So there's probably that. So overall, I like it when he puts the ball on the floor because he has the ability to be creative and get the shot. And then it ends up being very close. It's like two feet away. It seems like he shoots a high percentage there. So I would keep encouraging him to do that. And you're going to have to live with a few errant shots. But the philosophy of shoot is going to dictate uh, that you live with a few errant shots as opposed to uh, hesitancy and not shooting good shots. That's I would rather have a few bad shots than hesitancy and taking good shots. Because once you have any form of hesitancy in basketball, it's over. It's, it's probably not going to go in, man. You've got to believe it's going to go in before you're even attempting the shooting motion. Either the ball is coming your way via the bounce or a, a pass on a direct line, or you're dribbling the ball. And if you have that mindset with these guys, that's how they've won the 50 games. So no point in changing now. It's gotten them to a high, high level. Continue it. All right, question of the day, part two. The Warriors beat the Jazz again at home. Since they could meet up in the playoffs as the one and eight seed, I suppose possibly they could meet up as a two and seven also. What is your level of concern? And we've got Jazz fans all over the map on this one, and we will get to that next. Stay with us. The Big Show, the Big Show. with Jake Scott and Gordon Monson. Chris Mannix, how hard is it for these great athletes to come back from injury and go straight into the playoffs, which might be the case with Donovan? I don't know what his timetable is, but if it means he might have to miss a playoff game to get all the way back, you make sure that he's all the way back. We just saw with LeBron, who had a nasty ankle sprain of his own, he probably came back too soon, and it wound up costing him a week, and that's the last thing you need if you're the Jazz. You've got to be very patient with Donovan Mitchell. Look, this is the benefit of being the number one seed. Presumably, you're going to get an opportunity to play some but he should be able to handle without Donovan Mitchell for a game or maybe two. Catch the Big Show weekdays from 2 to 7. Presented by Big O' Tires. The team you trust. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. The Davis Vision Spring LASIK sale is going on now. Get rid of those contacts and glasses and save $1,000. Start your road to better vision at Davis Vision. Check them out at davisvisionmd.com or call them today at 801-253-3080. That's Davis Vision. So the Utah Jazz lose to the Warriors. They lose two out of three to the Warriors. The home team won every game in the regular season meetings. Since they could meet up again in the playoffs, what is your level of concern? Tim says, last night's another example of why home court throughout is so important for this team. No Spider, no Conley, 18-point deficit, and it still took a Steph winner from three. I am not concerned in a seven-game series at all. Tim. At all. Huh? At all. You love definitive. That's definitive. Okay. I think uh, I think Jazz fans should be a little concerned. I don't think they should be a lot concerned. I think the Jazz go in as heavy favorites against the Warriors. But they don't go in as a total lock. So you want to have some level of concern, especially, you know, when you go to the health angle, which, you know, if the Jazz aren't healthy, they can they can probably absorb an injury, absorbing two with guys who have a similar role. That, that's always going to be a problem. So you should be going concerned about an injury, certainly. And you should go in concerned that Steph Curry will be otherworldly. I don't think he'll do that to him four times in a game. I think that even if he goes off, they have the firepower to occasionally beat the Warriors by outscoring him. I wouldn't want to try to outscore him four times. Uh, but I also don't think... 
that Steph's going to have that many games. If Steph could carry a team like that consistently, they wouldn't be battling for the eighth seed right now. You know, there, there are limits on what any one player can do in a team game, even someone as good as Steph Curry. You want to argue with that? Anybody. I can feel it. I can feel it. <laughs> no, I wasn't listening, so oh, I was formulating my point. <laughs> you had the whole break for that. <clears throat> I don't think anybody is a lock in any playoff series in, in the, the West. West. In the West. I'd agree. There are some locks in the East in the first round, maybe one in the second round, but not in the West. The West is too competitive. Right. So I have a level of concern. When you have a player of the caliber of Curry, those guys don't come around very often. <laughs> they don't. And not only is he obviously individually great, but I think he takes the pressure off other guys. And so the role players can be better than they would be individually because of Curry and the attention that he demands. And not only does he demand attention from you on defense – but if it affects your offense, too, because you constantly have to be aware. All these perimeter guys, whether O'Neal's – forget O'Neal on offense. I mean, you just can't ask him to do everything here. And you have to chase Curry, uh, who is so difficult. But it's not just him, because if you're switching out front and whatnot, it's going to be the other perimeter guys, too. So they're taking so much energy to make sure that he's – contained to a degree and I thought they did a pretty good job of containing him and he's still at 36 and so you, you look at an Ingles he doesn't have a good game offensively at least shooting uh, but he's got to make sure that he's running around with Curry and then these other guys if they should get hot just adds to the dimension and that's what they had with a couple of other guys for the uh, Warriors who managed to be effective so now you're asking a lot. So I don't want to build them up to be the 32 Yankees here, but still. The what, huh? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Maris, Ruth, DiMaggio, those guys, Barra, Mantle. They had a good team back then. Look it up. Joe Pepitone. <laughs> and Joe so Pepitone. with, with, the, with that in mind. <laughs> You didn't grow up Italian in uh No, I didn't and I was just <laughs> it was just off the age group. Like dad could tell me all about him and I heard the name but I didn't see him play. But I know that he was that's a guy who would have gone viral if such a thing existed back then. He would yeah. it would have been unbelievable. Any Italian who played for the Yankees was very very much in favor with my grandmother Carmelo Pasello Ciamillo. Uh, so <laughs> Uh, that uh, Joe Pevitone was the name that I grew up with. Uh, I don't ever remember seeing him play, too, but I've, I've heard the name a million times over. Uh, but it requires a lot of effort, so I don't want to build these guys up to be unbeatable. But, yeah, I have a case of the nerves because I don't know that the number eight seeds who've upset one, and we, we said there was three here. In the in West. Recent in the times. West, yeah. And uh, I can't really remember the makeup of those teams, but did any of those teams have a player of the caliber of Curry? I'd have to go back and check. I don't know. Well, the Denver Nuggets against the Sonics, uh, no. 
No. I, I mean, first off, did anyone have a player of the caliber of Curry? How many guys are we talking about? Right, right, I mean, right. Exactly. The guy's got multiple championships, MVP. I mean. So why? how could you possibly yeah. say you have zero worries? You can't. It doesn't, I don't, doesn't make I don't any sense to me. I don't think that there's a team. You know, when the Jazz went to the finals the second time, they got the Clippers in the first round, and it was a year that there were seven good teams. They and, sucked, and right? And they were they the were one that got the eight, Yeah, they were an under 500 team, and there was zero chance. And the Jazz won three games yeah. by 20. And one of them, I distinctly remember this because it was hilarious. Because usually everybody's on the same page and really careful what they said publicly. And Sloan got mad after the game because the Jazz were uh, jackpotting around. You know, I think they were up by five or something late in the third quarter. And then they blew the Clippers off the floor. And Jerry was, rawr, 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 you know, trying to set a higher bar for the next game, right? And so his post game, and then he go in the locker and the horn is like, Jerry's running. And Jeff just looks up calmly. I don't know what he's worked up about. We won by 20. <laughs> you didn't usually get that kind of honesty spilling over to the media. And that's not going to happen this time because there isn't a team like that. There isn't a team that's that, that far down. Right, right, exactly. So you factor that in there, and I don't even know that they're going to play them, but uh, I would have a a level of concern. But my concern is far more about the Jazz than the opponent. Isn't it number one getting healthy? I mean, this has been going on a long time now. And with Conley's hamstrings, I just don't think you can be surprised anymore. You know, it's it's been an issue for on and off for two years. It's just going to be an issue on and off for the rest of his career. You know, he's a free agent. I don't, I, I think he'll be back with Utah, but I don't know anything for sure. But regardless where he is next year, whoever it is, and if it's the Jazz, I think we, we know it'll be like this. It's, he shouldn't be playing back-to-backs, right? This just keeps popping up. It's an ongoing issue. He's in his 30s. He's a smaller guy. You know, when he's healthy, he can beat people off the dribble. He can get into the break the paint, as Quinn likes to say, and do a lot of things. You just got to do what you can to keep him healthy and accept that he's going to be a you know, 60-game player, give or take a few games. You know, it's, that's the way it's going to be. So if you want to worry about his health all the way through the playoffs, I, I don't blame you. Hopefully he can stay healthy for two months because when he's been healthy, he's obviously contributed, you know, and he's had really good games. But you, you want to stress about that. Knock yourself out. Stress away. You know, with Donovan in the ankle, it's been a long time now. I mean, we're— Three we're, weeks? Yeah. Almost and it, four? it looks like—right. It looks like it's basically going to be a month, and maybe they'll well, play him in a, a game or two here at the end of the season, but it's going to be more than a month if it's the first playoff game, right? Five weeks. Yeah. Great. That's good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. As long as he comes back healthy. Yeah. If he's still limping around on it because he's, you know, hurt it a couple times trying to rehab it and it's never quite gotten right. Uh, you know, he was he was on TV last night, but uh, that didn't get addressed. You know, uh, in that situation, I don't know if someone told me they were healthy, if I'd believe them anyway. So, you know, what what are they going to say that's really going to change your yeah, mind? You, you say, yeah, now that you say that, uh, I didn't think of it at the moment, but that would have been an appropriate question. You know, what's your health status? Uh, as far as coming back for the first game of the playoffs. Because that's still uh, almost two weeks away, just a little under. Yeah, it's uh, it's a kind of question that I want to know the answer to, but when they tell me, I don't know that I believe it. Um, yeah, and, but I and I would, hear it. I, well, there is that. But, you know, because Andre Kirilenko did it and everybody rolled their eyes. So, I don't know. And I'm going to roll my eyes at Donovan. You know, so I'm hurt, but I'll be back. 
a week from uh, Friday, you I know, or whatever. I would still like to have heard what he said. Mm-hmm. And actually... Gauge the tone of his voice and the confidence yeah. level he and says it with, that kind of thing. I'm surprised that I did not think of that during oh. that time. Oh, I was sitting there the whole time thinking they're not going to ask him. I that. know, and you're right, <laughs> and I should have. It's not going to. I should have thought that now it would have made any difference. Of what you what, think sitting in your, in your well, man cave. Whether, whether they asked him the question or not. But in retrospect, they should have asked him the question. Unless they were told not, not to. to. Right. I, I don't know that. It's a jazz broadcast, obviously. Uh, but, yeah, I would have liked that question to be asked. I didn't think of it at the time. And I'm surprised at myself for not thinking about but that. But would you have bought the answer? Or would you? I fi- don't know. Fi- I, can't. I don't, know. I don't know what the answer would have been. Yeah. Because I, I was sitting there thinking, sir, if I get the answer, I'm probably going to file it next to Kirilenko. Like, how can you really know when you're going to be healthy? Especially because part of that is, I assume he's been out so long, now they're going to have him play two-on-two or three-on-three or something to kind of, you know, get back into it. They, they, send, they seem to take these comebacks and real baby steps trying to be careful. Um, and even so, guys get re-hurt. It just it happens, you know, and you can be playing two-on-two or three-on-three and land on somebody's foot and roll it again, you know. He's been out a long time. I assume there's been some kind of setback along the way, but I don't have any knowledge or details, but this just seems like a long time with an, with an ankle injury. But if he's back for the playoffs, I mean, they've been winning, so that kind of takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Don't you, aren't you more cautious? I mean, they're 6-2 and two without both of these guys. I mean, deep yeah, down, yeah, we, yeah. Didn't, we didn't have anybody coming on the air sending us open mics saying, I bet they go 6-2 and two without these two guys. There was hope, but there were no guarantees. And some of these wins, I mean, that, that Toronto win, now you don't really think about it, but, man, at the time, they really had to grind that thing out. That could have gone the other way. You know, probably a couple other games in this. Well, the San Antonio games couldn't have gone the other way. Those are pretty definitive. All right, DJ and PK, we got more coming up. 9 o'clock hour, Andy Bailey, NBA analyst for Bleacher Report, is going to join us next. We'll talk with him and get you caught up on everything in this show. Stay with us. 9 o'clock hour on the way. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone.